Turn to the back of your Bibles, the book of Revelation. And while you find that, I'm going to remind you that we're picking up something that we started last week and that there are two kinds of uh, things that I do, two different preaching gifts. One is teaching. That's one thing. That's something different than preaching. Teaching and preaching are two different things. And what we're doing, what we did last week and what we're doing today and for the next week or two is teaching. So I'm not preaching a sermon. I am teaching a lesson, but we're going to hinge it off of uh, a text in the Bible to which we'll refer. So uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, between last Sunday and this Sunday, uh, Robin Williams took his own life, as you know. And uh, I've shed tears over that uh, several times. I, I, I've teared up over it, but I, 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 got, I heard the news, it buzzed on my phone and um, heard it. I was startled and uh, processed it. And uh, probably an hour later, I, I wept over it. I wept over it. And it's not that I was some kind of big Robin Williams fan. I wasn't. I, was, I, don't, I mean, I saw some Mork and Mindy, but I don't remember much about it. I remember a world according to Garp and Dead Poet Society. I remember that, uh, Goodwill Hunting, stuff like that. But uh, I wasn't some huge fan, but I think some of the things that made it so poignant was that he seemed to be just a generally sweet person, didn't he? I mean, all of his Hollywood friends are saying he was just such a sweet individual. But the thing that makes it most poignant, of course, is that he was a humorist. He understood what laughter was, and he understood how to make people laugh. He understood that. He knew how to go into that realm of life. It's a rare thing to be able to do. He knew how to do it. And so when that's juxtaposed with the deep sadness that had to have happened in the final hours of his life, just very, very sad. And the, the thing that I kept thinking about it, the thing that really saddened me enough to bring me to tears was the idea of brokenness, the idea of brokenness in this world. I, I see this situation with this, this very sad man um, taking his life and you, you just go, man, it's just another evidence of brokenness in this world. Another evidence and then another evidence and then another evidence. Every time you look around, there's another evidence of brokenness. And what I mean by brokenness, and that's a word that often infuriates uh, opponents of Christianity because we talk about this broken world and they don't like it. And the reason they don't like it, I understand why they don't like it because it sounds like we got a bad attitude. It sounds like we're thinking, well, it's, it's, you know, it seems so negative because of its permanence. It's a broken world. It seems to go against people who want to make the world better, which is a good thing to want to do. It, doing good is good. Um, people want to, want to make a difference, and, and that, that seems to go against that, okay? Um, but what I mean by brokenness is this, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you move into a new apartment or a new home, 
or you're redecorating your office. And you've got to hang two pictures on the wall side by side. And, uh, you know, nail number one, duh, 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 you know, it's got a wire on the back and you hang that thing up there and you go, oh, that's about right. Okay, I'm going to get the other one and I got to put it up too. And it's got a wire on the back too. Now you understand what I'm saying, a lot of you, don't you? See, some of you are, lots of you are already nodding your head. You nail that nail. Those wires aren't exactly the same. You nail that nail, you stick it up there, you're like, oh, shoot. It's low. So you move the nail up and you put it up there again. Oh, it's still too low. And you overshoot it and you go too high and you go, oh, it's too high now. And you do it just constantly playing with it. Well, it drives you nuts because you know that when you hang a picture like this and a picture like this, a quarter inch difference is not going to work. If you're a married man, you know. <laughs> now that's a compliment to you ladies. That's a compliment. What I'm saying is, it's supposed to be a certain way and it drives you nuts when it's not that way. And that's what I'm saying when I'm saying that the world is a broken place and we can observe as inhabitants of the earth, just by looking at the world around us, we can observe some very serious realms of brokenness. And the first realm of brokenness I'll point out is love. Not merely this idea of loving all people generally, but I mean precisely loving. Um, loving, wouldn't you say, is compromised in this world? Wouldn't you say it's compromised? Wouldn't you say it's affected? Wouldn't you say it's broken? Uh, for instance, your children fight each other. Do you, did you teach them that? Well, somebody might say, well, they saw mommy and daddy fighting and they picked it up. Okay, sure. Okay, maybe so. But did you, did you teach him to say, mine? He touched me. Did you teach that aggressive... Did you teach that? Is that what you want? Or do they just know how to do it? Love is compromise, isn't it? How about this? Marriage. I know we live in a society where everybody's divorced and uh, nobody thinks much of it. You go to a wedding and you're like, hmm, that may or may not make it. <laughs> and you're invited to a wedding and you're like, oh, well, you know, uh, I'd hold them accountable, except we're all divorced too. <laughs> and, uh, but think about it. You come to a place and you make a covenantal promise to this person that you will love them more than any other person. And you gather every person that's important to you in your whole life and you put them in the same room and you make that promise in front of all of them. And you make that promise in front of a minister of the Lord. And you make that a promise in front of God himself. And you say, I'm going to cherish this person. I'm going to love them better for worse till death do us part. I'm going to do it. And then what do you do? The person you love the most, you profess your love to the most, you hurt. And the person who loves you the most hurts you. Now, friends, that is the highest act of human love, the coming together of a husband and wife. It's the highest act of human love. Now, I know you're thinking, oh, well, maybe not because of children. I'm not talking about raising your children. Listen, drunk people copulate. You don't have to be a genius. That's not the highest act of human love to meet somebody at a bar and get them pregnant. That's not the highest act of human love. Marriage, a one flesh union, coming together until death do you part, it's the highest act of human love, and love is broken. Very simple to see in this world. Tell you something else. Um, you'll hardly meet a person uh, in this world who wouldn't say, uh, well, you know, love needs to be, we need to be more loving, or uh, we need to love truth more. I mean, we need to be more honest. We need to be better people. We need to be more, more honest. You'll hardly find a person who wouldn't say that. But 
Let's talk about truth for a second in this world. If I take a bowling ball and I drop it on my bare foot, it's going to hurt. You know why? Because it's true. Now, if I go to poor Bob here and I say, hey, take off your shoe. Uh, I'm going to drop a bowling ball on your foot, but it's not going to hurt you because that's my truth. When Bob says, oh, no, that really did hurt a super lot. And then I say, oh, no, it didn't because my truth is that it didn't. And he says, no, but it did hurt. Well, somebody's right. Who's right? He's right. You know why he's right? Simply because it's true. That's how truth works. Something's true or it isn't true. I don't get to say, well, this is what I think is true. Well, this is what I think is true. Something's true and something's not true. Irrefutable. But in our culture, truth is broken. We go, oh, who's got the standard? Who are you to say? Well, who are you to say? Well, somebody says, that's my truth. Well, that's my truth. Well, the fact that we're all craving it, truth, the fact that we're all craving some standard right and wrong, what is real or isn't, and the fact that I have a view and you have a view and they're different views and, and we're coming to the same situation, doesn't that show you that there's got to be some kind of standard of truth outside of us? We crave it. We can't manufacture it. Doesn't just by, just by logic you say there's got to be a standard of truth somewhere. By sheer logic. Here's another one. Justice. That's compromised in this world, wouldn't you say? Uh, if you're paying attention to the news, 296 Palestinian children were killed by explosions. And uh, Palestinians go, justice! And uh, the Israelites go, well, what about the people you killed in our country with the bombs and the 5P and the this and the, and the rockets and the breaking of the, you know, the ceasefire and all that, and the tunnels and all that? And they, the Israelites go, justice! How about this? Raise your hand if you were ever robbed or mugged, anything stolen from you, your car, your house, your credit card uh, hacked. Who, raise your hand if, if you've ever been robbed. Oh, look at all of you. Almost everybody. What are there, 180 people in here? Almost everybody's been robbed. Don't you wish they would find the perp? <laughs> I mean, don't you wish? I mean, I remember I, I, some lady stole my wallet and bought a bunch of underwear. <laughs> I mean, really, like $1,800 worth of underwear. I'm like, ugh. I wish they would catch her. Somebody cuts you off on the road. You're like, where's the cop? I wish we'd catch him. How about this? Your reputation's been smeared. People say this thing about you or that thing about you, and it really hurts you. And you say, well, gosh, I've got no recourse. Now everybody thinks this, but I'm not really this, and I've got no way to fix it. Oh, I just wish I could fix it. What do you cry out for? You cry out for justice, don't you? Well, it's broken in this world. There's got to be a universal reason uh, for that. Because there's a standard of justice, and that standard resides in God's own person. And I could go on and on about stuff that's broken and fallen, uh, like peace and kindness and social responsibility and so on, reasonableness, right? We want to help people who need help, but we don't want to give them too much help, because if you give them too much help, it actually hurts them and puts them in a cycle of perpetual badness where they can't climb out of it. And, and where is the line? We all crave those kinds of things, and the world is broken. So, you might think I'm going on way too long about all this because what the topic is, what we're picking up from last week, is this what I think is an erroneous doctrine of some kind of reward system in heaven. And uh, so I, you, if you missed last week, I said that um, 
Uh, I think that when people, uh, most people think that they die and they go to heaven, that they go to a Malco theater and uh, they watch a big movie of uh, their life and everybody goes, oh, you're awful, gross, rated R, disgusting. And God goes, oh, oh, terrible. All right, you can come in because of Jesus. And I'm saying to you that that's a faulty doctrine. I'm saying to you that that's no encouragement for going to being with the Lord. Um, so why am I talking about all this stuff? Well, since last Sunday, I received a very uh, important question, and I also received two different comments um, that uh, really greatly shaped what I'm talking about here today. Well, I've, I've really slowed down, and I'm talking about a big picture thing that I think is very critical for the Christian church to know about. So it's, it's much more than a reward system in heaven. It's a greater theological system, and I want to spread that out for you and give you some really uh, important things to have a foundation on. So um, remember, I'm teaching, not preaching. So I ask you this question. Um, how does the Bible start? No, I'm, I'm, ta- I'm not talking about creation. I'm not talking about in the beginning. Uh, I'm not talking about that. How does the Bible start? Just big picture. The Bible starts with um, humans in paradise, in fellowship with God. That's the first two chapters of the Bible. Humans in paradise, in fellowship with God. And because they're in fellowship with God, that's what makes it paradise. They have unbroken fellowship with God. It's a sinless situation. They're enjoying God. And that's the, that's the, the first two chapters of the Bible. Um, so humans sin and the fellowship is broken. And there's another short word for that, brokenness. You know what it is? Cursed. So fellowship is broken, sin enters the picture, and all of a sudden, the first two chapters of the Bible are over, and now humanity is in a situation of being accursed, all right? Now, let's go, to, let's go to the Word together. So what I just read you, Revelation 22, it says, um, the angel showed me, that's the Apostle John writing, the river of water of life, Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, look, the tree of life. Same thing that's in Genesis 3.24, by the way. There's a tree of life. In fact, stay where you are. Let me just jump over there real quick. Don't, don't go because I'm already there. Um, Genesis 3. Check it out. This is in verse 24. Um, yeah. The Lord sent uh, uh, them out of the Garden of Eden to work from the ground from which uh, he was taken. He drove the man out. And at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. They're cursed. They're fallen. Fellowship is broken. No access to the tree of life. Well, what does it say in the last two chapters of the Bible? Verse 2. Now we're in the last two. Here's the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. And I know you're thinking, oh, there are 12 apostles. I know. That's not what this is talking about. Uh, You want to know what it's talking about? Yielding its fruit each month. Uh, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything, there's the word, accursed. That's the giant picture of the scriptures, ladies and gentlemen. Does that excite you? I bet that's the first time a lot of you have heard that. The first two chapters of the Bible, you've got paradise. You've got human beings who are sinless walking in fellowship with God. Last two chapters of the Bible, you have paradise. You have human beings in fellowship with the living God, now sinless, now made clean. First two chapters, last two chapters. 
Accursed because of sin? No longer accursed because sin's been dealt with. No access to the tree of life? Life everlasting. Is that amazing? That's the big picture of what the Bible's about. So you see the grand picture. That mankind was designed to be in fellowship with God. And the only way for that to be a reality is for mankind to be sinless. So God met the problem in Jesus Christ. And ultimate restoration will mean that human beings will be in unadulterated fellowship with God. So first two chapters of the Bible, last two chapters of the Bible. Now, everything in between. You know, you've got a status of blessing. You've got a status of curse. You've got a a status of no longer being accursed, but living in a state of blessedness. Everything in the middle, the whole book, ladies and gentlemen, all of it, cover to cover, is the unfolding of that story. All of it. There are no saving outposts along the way. And what I mean by that is God didn't go, oh, well, shoot. They sinned, and that's terrible. And uh, so... uh, Let's try this. Oh, they didn't do that. Well, let's try this. Oh, they didn't do that. Well, let me give them a law. Oh, they couldn't obey that either. Darn. Now I'm going to have to spill the blood of my only begotten son and bring out the, the, the big guns. No. The whole book is about Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. You know, you've heard people say things like, um, uh, well, um, uh, Jesus is on every page. You heard that in the Bible? People say that Jesus is on every page. Well, no, he's not really literally on every page. He's not literally on every page. Like, for instance, when uh, we don't get to say stuff like this. We don't get to say, well, when they put Moses in the basket, Jesus was the water. We don't get to say that. You know why? Because it's cuckoo. Um, The water was the water. But Jesus was the living water. I know. But you can't just... You just can't fabricate stories, but that's what people do. What they do is they go, well, um, you know, if, the, if, if all we need is the New Testament, and we'll throw in the Psalms and Proverbs too, because you can fit in your, back, in your, in your blue jeans. Uh, if all we need is the New Testament and the Old Testament's pretty much uh, moot by now, uh, what difference does it make? Now the Old Testament's just a bunch of moral tales. Well, dare to be a Daniel. I want to be more like David. Well, I don't. I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to dare to be like Daniel. I, I, want to be, I want to follow Christ faithfully as a Christian. And so my point is, um, when we're trying to understand grace, when we're trying to understand the arena of redemption, the theater of redemption, you know, God writes the script. It's his story. His story plays out. It's all about Jesus Christ. Well, we're trying to figure all that out, ladies and gentlemen. Um, everything comes back to what redemption is like, what the word of God is, and it affects everything. It affects your view of end times. It affects how you handle the scriptures. It affects what you preach and so on. Now, so we don't get to say, well, the water was Jesus, like I say, but is Jesus on every page? Sure. Is the, is the whole Bible about Jesus? Absolutely it is. What I mean is God gives and establishes priests, doesn't he? And what do the priests do? They intercede for the people. Uh, how about this? God uh, puts judges in place. And what do they do? They deliver the people. God puts kings in place. What do they do? Well, they establish kingdoms. They lead the people and establish kingdoms. One very particularly important kingdom. Uh, how about prophets? God gives his word to prophets, and they are the word of God in the midst of the people. And how about the temple? The temple means that God is himself in the midst of the people. What do all those things mean? Are we supposed to just go, well, those are just very interesting stories. They're kind of, you know, curious. 
They're very strange and curious. They're uh, ancient stories uh, that are Bible-y, and uh, maybe we'll do a topical thing every once in a while and refer to those things. No, ladies and gentlemen. The ultimate judge is Jesus. Judges point to the ultimate judge. The ultimate priest, the one who intercedes between man and God, is Jesus. He's the ultimate one, the final one. The prophet, he's the ultimate. He's the living word of God. He's the word of God in the midst of the people forever. Uh, All those things point to Jesus. How about a temple? I mean, Jesus makes our fellowship with God possible. He is himself the temple. And all those things, ladies and gentlemen, throughout the scriptures, throughout this whole story, throughout this whole book, are like big blinking billboards that point us the way. And they say, hey, Jesus is the one your soul has been yearning for. If you look around the world and you see that it's broken and you ache over it and you see somebody like Robin Williams who's talented and sweet and he's off this earth and it's heartbreaking, you say, man, why is it like this? I'm telling you that all of creation is groaning because Jesus is the one who sets things aright. Now, on this side of the cross, okay? So here's the cross. Where's, where's you? You're over here, right? On this side of the cross, you're here and you're looking to the cross and you're believing in a specific Jesus who did a specific thing at a specific place and time in history. That's what you're looking at. Okay, so I get up and I proclaim the good news of the gospel and I say, hey, you got sin in your life? You feel shame in your heart? You have guilt? Well, that can be cleansed. Your sin can be forgiven. You have questions about where you stand with the living God? I mean, if he really is perfect, if he's really just burning white hot in holiness, well, that's a problem for you, isn't it? The answer is Jesus. He's the divine one. He's the one with the righteousness of God. He's the one who paid the sin debt on the cross. And as a minister of the Lord, I say to you, believe it. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust in him and nothing else. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your merit. Don't trust in trying real hard. Don't trust in your mom and dad's religion. Trust in this savior, specifically Jesus. Okay, that's my message to you. Now on this side of the cross, what are they believing? How are they saved? It's a big mistake to say anything but Jesus. Big mistake. They believe the promise too, but they don't believe in a specific guy from a, at a specific time, a specific place with a, a Roman execution. They don't know anything about that, but what they do know is that um, God um, has decided to save and says, I want you to believe my promise. He says to Abraham, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And um, uh, from you is going to become a, uh, from you is going to come a savior. And uh, I'll tell you what else too. Uh, let me read this to you. This is, um, I just scribbled this in this morning, actually. Uh, Isaiah 59, don't, don't turn. Let me just read it to you real fast. Listen to this. Imagine being an Israelite on the other side of the cross and uh, God has made promises along the way, and, and, and there are believers along the way, believers of the promise. Now, they don't know specifically the name Jesus Christ. They know that there's a coming Messiah, but listen to this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short to save, or his ear too dull to hear. Hey, his arm's not too short to save. His ear's not too dull to hear. He can hear. Don't, don't, don't worry. He's paying attention. He can save, but your iniquities 
have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Well, that's a powerful reality, isn't it? Imagine being on the other side of the cross hearing that going, he could save, but he won't save because iniquity separates from this holy God. He could hear, he does hear, but he won't hear me. Oh, dear Lord, I pray for my nana. No. Sin separates from a holy God. Now, it goes on to say, the Lord saw it. It displeased him. There was no justice. He saw and wondered, uh, there was no man, uh, and there no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. And it goes on to say, and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. A redeemer will come from Zion. Well, that's cryptic. That's not specific. It doesn't say believe in Jesus, but it does say a redeemer is going to come. It's going to be from God's own arm. Yes, sin separated you, so you can't do anything about it, but God's going to intercede. And the person on this side of the cross goes, I believe. In, in what are they believing? The promise. In what are we believing? The promise. It's all Jesus. And if, if the answer is ever anything but Jesus, well, in the Old Testament, uh, God gave them the law. And um, they could be uh, saved uh, by uh, observing the law. That's how they got into heaven before, uh, is, uh, is to, by uh, obeying the law. Now, friends, have you ever met another human being? Do you ever think that's even possible? At any point in human history? Well, I obey the law, God. You like me now? Of, of everything you know about how God portrays himself in the scriptures, do you think that's even possible? You know, uh, Romans 5 says that those outside of a savior are enemies of God. That's a Bible word. You can find it in any translation. Enemies of God. Uh, someone outside of a savior is hostile toward God. That's in Colossians 1. Um, people outside of the savior that's been provided by God, say the scriptures, are dead in transgressions and sins. That's Ephesians 2. People without a savior confronting this holy God, Ephesians 3 says they are cut off, also Ephesians 3, without hope, also Ephesians 3, without God, also Ephesians 3, far away from him. And all of that plays importantly into what we're talking about concerning our standing in heaven. God operates a certain way in redemption, ladies and gentlemen. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. Not by works so that no one can boast. It's a gift. No one can say, well, I at least contribute. I put the bow on it. No, it's a gift from God. It's the dollar bill that's been put in your pocket. You look down and you go, wow, a dollar bill. That's grace. Grace is the only way. And so when we're considering heaven, my friends, that's your foundation. That's the way God operates. Grace is the only way. So if you're thinking that uh, we're going to get to heaven and there's going to be some kind of terrible reward system uh, like, like at the, the ski ball thing where you bring your tickets to the window and you go, okay, let's see what I get. Oh, really? That's what heaven is? Oh, okay. Kind of in the, I'm in the slums. Too bad. That's not how God works, ladies and gentlemen. We'll explore it more next week. But uh, that's the giant overarching picture of salvation. That's this. Grace is the arena in which God operates. That's how he operates. At no time do we 
uh, earn any aspect of our rescue in Jesus Christ. And by the way, pity the man that says or implies we're saved by grace, but we're kept by works, or we're sanctified by works, or our place in heaven is going to be secured by our works. Pity the man who says that, because that is not the gospel message. That is not how it works, ladies and gentlemen. Now, that's to address a couple of the comments that were made to me last week. One was by uh, someone in the room, and one was via email, a very thoughtful uh, email from a guy who had listened to it online. And so it, is, it shaped the way I, I think that underlying foundation is so important for the Christian to, to have. And it's not what a lot of you have grown up with. It certainly wasn't what I, was, what I grew up with. Now, to the question. Somebody had a question for me last week, and uh, the question was something like, um, it was taking issue with, um, uh, well, I said, there's no sadness in heaven. There's nothing that can make anyone sad in heaven. And what I read you was, um, oh, uh, Revelation 21, uh, it says, um, uh, and by the way, let me, let me start by saying, look at verse 1 of 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's key to understanding what's happening. Um, in this new heaven and new earth, where all things have passed away and the new stuff has come, verse four, God himself will, well, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Guys, no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All right, so... That is what you call conclusive, all right? But the question, a good question, why then do the slain cry out, how long? And if you were with me two or three weeks ago, uh, that was my closing illustration. You remember that? A couple, two or three weeks ago? Um, in, in chapter 6 of Revelation, uh, he, uh, he opened the fifth seal. Uh, the lamb, I under, under the altar, of the, uh, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? All right, don't turn. Look up. Don't, don't, I don't want to spoil it. All right, so look. You got the slain. And they say, how long, O Lord? Now, that they cry, my first answer is that they cry out in a loud voice and say, how long, O Lord? That doesn't mean that they're going, how long? Oh, it's so horrible up here with you, God. I'm so miserable because things aren't set aright. That doesn't imply that. It's just say that it says that they cry out with a loud voice, how long? And guess what happens? Um, the next verse says, then they were each given a white robe and told to blank a little longer. What do you think goes there? The NIV says wait. Out of 21 Bible translations I looked at, it's the only one that says wait. And by the way, if you study it, there are commentators that, that think that the word, <laughs> the word that, and they're smarter than I am, but I think this is cuckoo is all get out, but they'll, they'll say, uh, well, yeah, what the word that needs to go in there is sh- something like shut up, you know? <laughs> Shut up already. You're driving me crazy. I'm on top of it, you know? Just go roll with it until Jesus comes back, you know? I don't think that's what it means. Let me, let me tell you what it says. In, in 20 of the 21 Bible translations I checked, they were each given a white robe. Oh, that's a beautiful picture of uh, holiness and purity. And they were told to uh, rest. 
rest a little longer, not squirm around in agony, not be upset and sad, rest a little bit longer. All right. Now let me show you, um, this is, um, I've got one more, one more way to answer that question in first John three, two, let me just read it to you. Uh, it says, um, beloved, it says, um, uh, what we, we, we are God's, uh, we are God's children. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because what? What do you think it goes in there? What, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, what I'd like to point out to you is this. When you see God as he is, it's going to be this situation. You know, when, when you think you have all the facts to some, you know, scenario, you think you have all the facts and somebody says, no, what you don't know is this. And you go, oh, well, that changes everything. I thought I had it all sewn up. Uh, but now that you've shown me that, now I go, no questions. I hope I'm trying to stand corrected. What I'm saying to you is there's going to come a point where we see God as he is. And we're going to say, ah, I don't question your judgments. I don't question who's here and who's not here. I'm not sad over whatever this, I'm, I see you as you are, and that's enough for me, and it's total satisfaction. And that's why it says, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Paul says, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's a preference. It's a happy preference to be in God's presence. But the big answer to the question, and with this I'm done, is this idea of a new heavens and a new earth. Christ has come, right? Praise God, he's come. He's paid the sin debt. Christ will come again. He's inaugurated his kingdom. He will consummate his kingdom. We live within the tension of that present reality and the thing to come. The already and the not yet, as you've heard it many times put. We live within that intermediate state. He'll, he's come, he'll come again. What I'm saying to you about heaven is a new heaven, a new earth, it's here. It's when he comes again. Things are set aright. That's when every tear is wiped away. That's when there's no more mourning. That's when everything's, that's when sin's put away. But until that time, friends, to be absent from the body and present with the Lord is to see him as he is. You're going to step into eternity, Christian. You're going to see Jesus Christ. You're going to see the glory of God. And you're going to say, I have no questions. This is bliss. More next time. Come back. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you have not given up on your creation and that you have saved us with an everlasting Love, you've set it upon us and you won't turn your eye from us. What was once a, um, an arm that wouldn't save, saved. And what was an ear that didn't hear, hears. And you receive us as children and uh, you grow us up into the likeness of your own son. So we pray, Lord, that you would make our hearts teachable and warm. We pray, Lord, that we would joy in this salvation and particularly that we would walk away marveling at this glorious story cover to cover. You have shared yourself with us, shared this plan of redemption, and we pray that we would rejoice in it and see it clearly. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.
Appreciate you. See you in the big house.